Hey, Mel. Bri here. Gotta work from home today because the whole family caught a nasty... Daddy! Hey, Mikey! If you're gonna puke, find the popcorn bowl! But my availability is 110%. Coincidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up for Season 8, Episode 6. This week, uh, it, it seemed like the reaction was pretty good, um, but I do want to apologize again for kind of the format. I think Mike and Shane made everything sound great, uh, and I made their job very difficult, especially Mike's, because I was I was recording and reading on the fly, uh, going through the the police report. And as I stated in the episode, it was because it was a last minute thing when we finally came across it. And so this week's episode is actually same thing. We're going through the rest of the report, but it'll be it'll be much more. Uh, it'll be better organized, but a lot of interesting stuff came out in this episode. Th- this case continues to teeter the scales back and forth between innocence and guilt for me. Uh, so there's definitely some things that I want to discuss and listeners want to discuss, and I'm sure Zach wants to discuss and Mike wants to listen to. Uh, so I'm joined in the studio today, as always, as of the last two weeks by Mike. Hey, and Zach. Hey, guys. Did Did you notice that Mike was nodding his head yes when you said you made his job difficult? I don't know if you caught that. I, I, did. I didn't, but I, I knew it. I did. I caught it. How many times did I apologize during the recording? Like on Several. The recording? Yeah. It wasn't too bad. So I was. I had the, the report on the teleprompter mm-hmm. up there, and I would scan through, and I would hit pause, and I'd read it. And I'd already read it once, but like I'd read it like, okay, so I want to say this and this and this. But I had no – I didn't have my words chosen. So I'm like, I just – I just – Okay, sorry, Mike. Uh, I w- no, that's not right. Uh, you know what? Go back four minutes ago and scratch this whole bit and then go back to the it – was, it was pretty rough. But anyway. After Mike had edited that part. Right. This episode will be much more uh, clean and better organized and sound better and hopefully be less work for Mike. So after a quick break for an ad, uh, we're going to get going with your listener questions. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get going with all of your questions, I do want to take just a quick minute for anybody that is not aware yet. Um, last week, uh, I believe it was Thursday or Friday last week, uh, John Mark Byers has passed away. And for those of you that, that listen to season five or are familiar with the West Memphis three case, John Mark Byers was Chris Byers' father. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's sad. He's a, he's a character that has been 
you know portrayed. He's he's been kind of a larger than life character throughout the all the different documentaries and the online forums about the case and the podcasts. Uh, uh, Mike and I have both sat in his living room with him and on multiple occasions and interviewed him and had conversations with him. And uh, you know he he's been a big character. There are, there are people that love him, people that can't stand him. But regardless of, of your feelings about him, it's always sad to see, uh, I don't know if the word is, the legacy of one of the victims, uh, someone someone that's part of that legacy to go away. You know, Chris Byer's mother passed away three years after his death. Uh, his biological father is still around, I believe, but wasn't really part of Chris's life. John Mark had, had adopted Chris uh, early when he was very young and had been really his father figure up to the point when he was murdered. So now Chris's mother is gone and his father is gone. And it's just, um, it's just, just, just want to make sure everyone's aware of it and just, you know, ex- express the fact that, that for me, I think it's just, it's, it's sad to see anybody go. It was a vehicle accident, a single vehicle accident. I don't, I don't know any details about it. Um, but it was confirmed that it was John Mark Byers that passed away. And, um, it's just, it's, it's just sad to see, you know, as we try to keep the victims of that horrible crime in the front of our minds, it gets easier and easier to forget when the people that are keeping their memories alive are, are fading out of our lives. And John Mark Byers certainly was one of those. And sadly, he is, he is now gone. And with all that being said, uh, we're going to get into your questions about our current case, uh, the double homicide of Agnes and Lloyd Courtney. A lot of stuff came out, and I guess right off the bat, I, I want to ask Zach, what did you think of the episode? What has it done for your thoughts on the case, and where are you at with it now? You know, I'm still really back and forth. This episode shed some light and and still hid a lot in the shadows that we don't know about, as far as like the scratching and the bruising. Like we have all these witnesses that say that her arms are bruised and she had scratches. But then again, like you said in the episode, nobody testified to this. Why did no one testify to this? Right. Well, the p- police officers did, but none of the family did. But I, I want to talk about the – I know you got more, but, I, but why it's in the front of my brain, I want to talk about that. Scratches and bruises. I didn't think about this until later after we recorded the episode, but I think that we can rule out the scratches as having anything to do with the crime. Okay. And it's because two things. One, uh, th- there was DNA analysis done under the fingernails. We did did find that out in the reports, and there was nothing that came back, obviously, to Debbie or I believe anybody else. I think they only found their own DNA under the clippings. Uh, but the other thing is there were multiple officers in the victim's assistance coordinator that met with Debbie the night of the murders and the next day. And some of them noted the bruises on her arms, but no scratches. Okay, and that would have been a massive, massive red flag, and it would have been full if there were visible scratches on her arms. It would have been very visible, uh, and 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 easy to be photographed. And she's wearing a short sleeve shirt in the the photos we have of her. So you know her arms were visible, and there were no scratches. And then it's it's what five days later at the funeral, and it was it sounded like it was after the the funeral gathering when they went back to the house. That people noticed the fingernail scratches on her arms. So, so whatever they were, they were not. I don't think that they had anything to do with the crime. They did kind of sound self-inflicted. You mm-hmm. know, a, a nervous twitch of, right, of some like sort. Right, like if she sits and, and scratches her arms, mm-hmm. which I've seen. I've seen people do it. I've probably done it. I, you know, you yell at me all the time. I pop my fingers. Right. 
and it's just a, I do it without thinking. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to say it's a nervous thing, but I do it without thinking. You right. know, and it could be just a nervous twitch is that she scratches herself. Right. Yeah. And as far as the bruising goes, I don't. You know, I, I kind of again, you have to remember, I, I was I was recording on the fly late at night when that, when I was putting that together. But so you know, I you were you were hearing kind of a free flowing of my thoughts at the time, or I've had more time to to cross reference things now. But you know, I pointed out like I find it weird that all of these family members said she had bruises on her arms, but none of them testified. And then also, I find it weird that the police officers say that they noticed the bruises, but chose not to to photograph them. And so I. I, I feel like I gave the impl- the impression or the implication during the episode that I don't think there really was bruises. Now that I, I really thought more about it, I, I, I'm sure there were bruises. I'm sure there were bruises by the funeral, mm-hmm. by the time the funeral happened. Too many family members. We have recorded interviews from some of those family members, but it's just inaudible. You can't, I, like, I can't even pick out the words in them to hear what they're saying. But they said that they had transcripts of some of those. Uh, and I wish I could, which I don't have. I, I, I would, because I, I would like to know: Did all those family members say she had bruises on her arms, or did the police say, "Did you notice bruises on her arms?" Mm-hmm. And they're like, you know, now that I think about it, yeah, she did have bruises. So I'm, I'm curious how that came about. But I'm sure there were bruises. I, I will say though that I'm not sure. I'm not convinced they were bruises on the day of the the crime or the next day. Yeah, it, you know, it doesn't seem like if they. Let's say she did do this and mm-hmm. they're defensive bruises. Mm-hmm. I, you know, they probably wouldn't be present. Bruising doesn't just happen right away. I mean, typically, I mean, some people bruising will happen quickly, but more often than not, you won't get a bruise till the next day. Right. But that's when they were there was the next day. Yeah. Well, they, well, they were there that night and then they were there that night and then again the next day. So okay. over 24 hours had passed. And by then, at least, I mean. I'm not a doctor, mm-hmm. but for me, if I bang my shin on something or bang my forearm on something. Yeah, bruises should be visible by then. The next day, you can see I've got yeah. a bruise. So I you d- don't believe that the bruises were visible then? I, I don't I, I don't want to say that. I don't want to be accusatory of of the Fort Worth PD, but I, I, I'll i say this. I find it suspicious that, you know, because what we have to remember is these reports are written after the fact, and it's very, very clear, and it's not uncommon with this case. It's, it's common in most cases. But it's very, very clear when you read the reports. And and I have some handwritten notes from the detectives. I want to go back through and look and see if anything was noted. But all this this giant supplemental report was written in order to build a case against her. And everything swayed that way. You know, so so it's, it's possible they were there. And then a week later, people tell them, oh, she had bruises on her arms. And if someone is, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to build a case against her, it's pretty easy to write into the report like, oh, I noticed bruises on her arms that day, mm-hmm. but I didn't take pictures of them because I didn't think they would show up. First of all, that makes absolute zero sense to me. I'm trying to think of, a, of, a, of an example, but I, I, as I'll say this, a picture, a camera is capturing the image that you're seeing with your eyes. I mean, so if I, if I look at your arm right now, and I see with my naked eye there's a bruise on it, then a pic- camera would also see the bruise on it. You know what I mean? It's not like it's something like, oh, we, you know, there was blood detected with luminol, but if you turn the lights on and take a picture, it wouldn't show up in the camera. They're talking about something in, in that that is so noticeable that they noted that they could see it. 
why would, and maybe you can explain, you were a photographer, I don't know, or you did some photography work, but I'm like, why would someone think, oh, I'm not going to take a picture of that because even though I can see it and it's so obvious that me and these other two officers here all see it, why would I assume that it, we wouldn't be able to see it in a picture? See, the assumption is my problem. I don't have a problem with them saying that they took a photo and couldn't see it in the photo. Right. Because, because that does happen. You know, right. I've, I've done photography. I've done a lot of things. And I, and I still like, I tattoo for a living. Most listeners know that. Uh-huh. I take photos of my tattoos all the time. And, and you can never get a photo to look like what it looks like. Right. Cause lighting and things Every, like that. Yeah, yeah. Everything is different. The way you capture, you know, the way your eyes see it is just different than the way the camera sees it. Right. So if they had taken a photo and the bruises weren't apparent, that makes more sense to me. Right. But to say that they just assumed it wouldn't, that's the problem that I have. Right. Because you would. If, if I saw a bruise, you'd take a picture. Maybe mm-hmm. the picture doesn't come out. Right. But you'd still want to do it. So, so that's hard for me to understand. But my, my biggest thing with the bruises is, you know, so she's admitted to having bruises, you know, right. again. So this is, this is where I, I – this whole case is very inconvenient for Deborah. In my opinion. Yeah, 100%. If, if she did not commit these murders, it's extremely inconvenient that she fell down the stairs and has bruising. Right. And that she cut herself and bled at the house the day of the murders. Right. So, I, you know, that, that whole Occam's Razors thing, that's where it leads me to believe. But then there is a lot of evidence that says she could have been gone by then. Right. I mean, more than that, there's, there's evidence that indicates she was gone by then. You know, one point that I made during the, uh, it was kind of towards the beginning, but it, it, and again, it was just free flowing thought as I was going through all these new reports of people, you know, people in the neighborhood, multiple people in that neighborhood, remember it's a a neighborhood full of retired people, all saw her there that morning. They all saw her car. So, you know, talk about Occam's razor. She says she's gone, you know, shortly after Agnes gets back from the store. Every single witness that they spoke to in that neighborhood that saw anything saw her car there when she said her car was there, when she said she was there. All these people see her there. What are the odds that not a single person in that neighborhood, no one they spoke to, saw her car there after she said she was gone? That, I mean, that is interesting. And, and my thought on it is exactly almost the opposite, too. Is if people are so observant, how do they not see anybody else? You know, you have the neighbor behind that saw the gentleman in the backyard. Right. But no one else saw anything else. Right. But then you think if someone's intention was to go there and kill them, they would be trying to to hide their presence. Okay. As opposed to Debbie, if she didn't do it, if she was there, then she's she's not trying to hide her presence. She parked in, right in front of the house and walked right in the front door. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. if someone was trying to be incognito you know going through the alley in the back and you know and and sneaking around that way you know there there's it's more understandable that they wouldn't notice that but it's just that the things like cars parked right out in front it's again it doesn't mean that she didn't do it and and it doesn't mean that i'm closed off to the idea but i i just that was just one of the things that i thought is like what are the odds everybody mabel says she's sure she was gone at noon when she got back and Everybody else they talked to said, oh, we saw her car there at 8 in the morning. We saw her car there at 9 in the morning. We saw her car there you know, around 10 in the morning. All in the times, you know, in those morning, early morning hours. So, yeah, I, I just I found the interesting. But then, yeah, there's, man, I have a hard time getting past the, you know, the other circumstantial evidence. 
It's it's certainly like I said, in my opinion, it's it's definitely not a strong case, mm-hmm. especially at this point. But you know, when you, you go back to the Occam's razor thing, you know, the, the simplest solution is usually the the, the solution. Yeah, then I think so. Like we talked, we we talked at, at length about this, the blood. You know, it's like, well, her blood's on the crime scene. That that means she probably committed the crime. Mm-hmm. Simplest solution. But can you come up with a simple solution as to how her blood's on the crime scene and it's not mixed with anyone else's blood? Yeah, I mean, it's it's got to be her story that she blood. Right, doesn't have to be, but it it certainly it's a the highest probability. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what I mean. So it's, it's like it, you can't even look at this case like, oh, well, it's the most simple, simple thing. It's like because there is no simple thing. Mm-hmm. You know, if her blood is there on the scene and it's not mixed with anybody else and, it, and, it, and, it, and her blood got there during the commission of these bloody, horrible crimes, there's no simple explanation to that. I, I can't come up with a with a way that possibly happened. Maybe in one spot, maybe in two spots, but every spot is just her blood. Yeah, that is alarming. Especially when you look at so when you look at the stuff on the door frame. And and again, let's not forget about the fact that in in the well, I say the in the video you can't see that blood smear on the on the mirror, but I'm still not going I'm not going down that 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 rabbit hole cuz even though I agree you can't see it, I don't necessarily that means it wasn't there. Mm-hmm. But the door so we know doing this is a basic crime scene reconstruction that the attacks were well underway. When that blood would have got on the door, according to state's theory, because we have clear impressions of Agnes behind the door. It it, it seems very clear that the door was being pressed because she was being pinned between the door and the wall. Her blood is all over the wall. Her blood is all over the backside of the door. And, And then and then on the front side of the door, you have the little smear of Debbie's blood and then a smear of her blood on the door jam, which if the door is closed are right next to each other. You know, they're right there. But point being, at the point when the door was being pushed, when that blood would have been left there, Agnes is already covered in blood because we know that because there's blood all over the place. So, again, how does it not how is it not mixed? How does the killer not have Agnes's blood on them? I don't know. That's a good point. And, and honestly, I'm just as you're talking, I'm thinking about this, that it's the nap theory is weird to me, too, then. Because if she was attacked while taking a nap, how does she get to the door and then back to the bed? I don't think she went back to the bed. I think she was, my theory, hypothesis, is that she was attacked on the bed while she was napping. Mm -hmm. And then I think, and it's just, again, just my hypothesis, I think that the killer left the room while she's laying on the bed bleeding and she got up. Okay. And then and went and maybe even like tried to shut the door to keep them out. And then the killer forced, forced their, their way, way back, back in. in and then kill because she went from the door to the floor. OK. Yep. Right there. At mm-hmm. least at least that's that's my the way I see the crime scene. That doesn't mean that's accurate, but that's the way I see it. OK. But yeah, man, there, there's just there's a lot. Again, you know, I, I'll say that one of the biggest things that jumped out of me that I found immediately concerning was in the police report. It says when they talked to Debbie, she says we've been waiting for this to happen. You know, because of, you know, dad's been getting threats from people he put in prison. To me, that's more of a red flag than the blood. Yeah. Because it's like, there just so happens to be a note on his leg that says that, you know, that implies that this is somebody he put away in prison. And the first thing she says is that. But again, we don't have a recording. 
Yeah. We don't have a statement. We don't know what was asked. And the report was written after the fact. And I still, I mean, we talked about this last week, but I still have a hard time finding that as a motive as far as like someone actually being put in prison to retaliate against the fingerprint analysis guy. Right. I mean, I find that really hard. Oh, me too. The the only way that it makes any sense to me is if it was an innocent person that got put in prison because of some shady practice. Mm -hmm. But then it's like, so this is not a killer that got put away. Yeah. That's and, now and so now, now they're going to get out and go kill somebody. I, it, it's hard to imagine. It's, yeah, it's, it's hard it's to very imagine. Dexter-ish. Yeah. But, 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 man, I wish that we had a recording of, and I don't, and that's nothing against Fort Worth PD. It's not normal for them to record a conversation when they're going to notify a family member about a death. But I would love to know, you know, the report, again, intentionally, which is not uncommon, is written to make Debbie look guilty. Doesn't mean it's not truthful, but it could be context. Mm-hmm. Did she say immediately, Oh my God, we've been waiting for this to happen because somebody my dad put away, you know, people that he put away in jail have been threatening him. Yeah. Or was the note mentioned prior to her saying that? I don't think the note was mentioned. I think they kept some detail because there's a later in the report that we're going to get to this week. There's parts where they, they mentioned that Brenda at some point, Debbie had told her things about the crime that she, and it was concerning to police. Like, how did, did Debbie know those things? Mm, that's interesting. But then it comes, it turns out that Judge Dofino at the courthouse was talking to the investigators and had shared with them. And by the way, just, you know, why we're like, dun, dun, dun. The things she said were close, but were wrong. Okay. Which is another indicator that, you know, it's, it again leans to she doesn't really know what happened. You know, I don't remember what they, we'll get into them this week, but I remember just reading, skimming through, and it was like, it was the note. It was something like the note, you know, you know, that that Smitty had a note pinned to his chest. It'd be something like that, where like mm. she had heard that there was a note, but didn't have, you know, didn't have the details of it right. Okay, um, something like Interesting. that. Interesting. But anyway, my point is, I think that they were keep they were keeping stuff from him. But you know, is the conversation? Can you think of anybody? Of course, they would ask this, and it doesn't say in that report that they did ask it, but you know, they did. The, the basic investigative work is. Do you know anybody that would want to hurt your parents? Could it be that, you know, you know, somebody that your dad put in prison, did they ever receive any threats? And she might have been. Yeah. And, and we'll see when we get into the defense that there were, there are at least supposed incidents of threats where at one point they even had surveillance on the Courtney's house because they were worried about threats that Smitty had received. So knowing that, you know, so it could have been like, yeah, well, we did, you know, we had been threats. We kind of were afraid this was going to happen. But then when the report gets written, it's not false, but they only put Debbie said, we've been waiting for this to happen, even though maybe she did say that, but she didn't say it at all in that context and unprompted the way it makes it seem in the report. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I would say that if the the police didn't ask her if there was any any reason why she thinks anybody would want to hurt her parents, then they weren't doing their job. They, of course, should have asked her that. Mm -hmm. But 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 definitely that one jumps out at me. It's concerning for sure. It, it's too, it's too overselling the, you know, here's the forensic countermeasure note. And then I'm going to point you in this direction. That's, that's a big red flag. Now maybe we'll down the road, we'll find out that it has nothing to do with it. Though, right. Like you said, but th- at the moment that seems like a big red flag. Yeah. But again, like I said, the other piece for me is I don't believe that conversation happened the way it's written. I know the conversation didn't happen the way it's written. You know, there, in a, a one paragraph blurb in a report, is not the entire conversation, mm-hmm. obviously. 
And again, there's no chance they didn't ask her who might want to hurt their dad or her parents. So I don't think we can assume that she just said, oh, by the way, this is what I think happened. I guess one of the things we'll have to look for, and, and maybe you know this because obviously you're, I'm just here, you know, I'm, I'm the voice, but is if there's any knowledge of this anywhere else besides Deborah? Knowledge of what? Of, of the threats. Like, does any coworkers know about these threats? Are there any, is there any evidence of these threats? I mean, oh, I know you said right. there was surveillance, but is that just them saying that? Is that the Courtney's doing it on their own? You know, I mean, my father-in-law is paranoid all the time, so he's got surveillance around his house. There's no one coming to get him. Right. He's just paranoid, you know? So is it that type of thing or is it, was there genuine threat that there's knowledge of outside of that? Yeah. And, and I, I think I know the answer to that. I don't, but we're, we'll get there enough because I, I don't want to get it wrong. I need to get into the documents, but uh, it, it seems to me that there was a legitimate concern because when I say surveillance, I don't mean cameras. I mean, mm-hmm. having police set outside their house. Okay. All right. We're going to jump into these questions. Our first one comes from Melody. If Deborah was there to help clean her parents' house, why would she not clean up her blood when she realized her cut had opened back up? Or were the blood spots so small she didn't even see them? They weren't that small. Some of them weren't. But so you look at the the ones on the door. Again, they, they talk about there's blood on the door frame and blood on the mirror on the door. But if the door's closed, you know, like if she had a bloody finger when she just opened the door, it would hit both in one spot. You know, it was right there. Might not have realized that one. The other one was a spot on the the kitchen table, which was not super visible. Uh, And then uh, a drawer, which was not super visible. And then the garbage can lid is uh, the one I had the biggest problem with. You know, how did an entire team of forensic investigators look at the white plastic garbage can lid and determine there's nothing on it? And then later find out, oh, there is blood and it's Debra's. So so obviously it wasn't a big obvious mark. As far as her cleanup, her purpose to go there, I don't think, was to clean the house. She said she was doing some dusting, and and that's how her blood got spread around the house. Uh, but she was going there to pick up a receipt. Her the, the parents, uh, her parents had bought some trees for their house for her husband's birthday, and that was the purpose. And and to be honest with you, I don't know if she's telling the truth about even cleaning the house. Because it just doesn't seem like her from mm-hmm. what, what's what been noted from the little bit that I've known. Like, it sounds like her house was a mess. She was, you know, with the, the medication she was on and the issues that she had, it sounds like she was very much not motivated. And, you know, so if she doesn't clean up her own house, it doesn't seem real likely that she would go out of her way to clean up at their house. And I think that, I think Deborah, if Deborah is innocent. I think she got caught in the same trap that a lot of people get caught in, which is they're confronted with evidence that they can't explain, so they make an explanation. They think back to season two, Ed H with the car, at you know him him driving to his girlfriend's house. You know he he just you know at the beginning of it he didn't want his mom to know that he had taken his grandma's car. So he makes up a story about, you know, some some buddy that picked him up. And then later they find out the buddy didn't pick, you know, it's, it's like they're, they're trying to explain that, you know, well, we know you were here. How'd you get here? Uh, let me give you a, 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 a story, a reason, an excuse as to how I was there. Um, but, what, but what was interesting to me to read these initial reports is that her story about dusting and cleaning and, and leaving blood on the scene 
was absent, completely absent from her initial interviews. She didn't say any of that until after they said, you have, your blood was found on the scene in these places. How do you explain that? And then she gave them an explanation. But as we talked about last week, there's a lot of options here. I mean, it could be her blood. It was there and she did bleed on, bleed on it. And, and maybe she was dusting. She's telling the truth. Maybe her blood was there and she just, you know, her bandage came open and she bled in a few places and didn't realize it. And then gave a, an elaborate scenario as to how the blood got in each place or what's still on the table. And I know there were a few people that were really upset about this in the fan page. Like I was accused. I don't think you were listening last week. If you didn't hear that, I'm not accusing the Fort Worth Police Department of manufacturing or falsifying evidence. But I'm saying it would be irresponsible for us not to discuss it when the DNA expert says something seems very suspicious about it to her. So we have to leave on the table that it could be a possibility that her blood wasn't actually on the scene. But now Deborah has in either way, she's kind of in a trap now because now she's gone on record and explaining why her blood was on the scene. So you mentioned something in there. You mentioned the tree receipt, which kind of leads me down a different rabbit hole real quick. Uh-huh. We talk about the tree receipt that she was there to get this. Mm-hmm. Is her story that she waited for Agnes to get home? I we'll have to wait till we get into her testimony. Okay. I mean, I, I've been been through it, but I don't want to. Mm-hmm. I don't want to speak about details like that with, until I confirm them. Because in in this episode, we talk about you know they they talk with the lady from the store and they and she says what time Agnes was at the store, right? And what time she's presumed to be home, which wouldn't line up with what Debbie said or the neighbors said at that point. You know, they, they right. have her leaving earlier than what. That should be what Agnes should be getting home. Right. Yeah. It, well, there's definitely a timeline issue, but, it, but, it, it, and there are some people that have pointed that out that are far more concerned about it than I am. Because as always, nobody's watching the clock. So I, I think, I think things that we can count on are her chiropractor appointment was at nine o'clock. Okay. So we can assume at nine, she was at the chiropractor. Now, the Cairo, I think it was 9, whatever time that was, I think it was 9. I think they said she got there like 8.45, and it was at 9. Now, the the husband and wife say, yeah, she stayed there until, you know, she was at the chiropractor until she hung around the house until 10, 10, 15. But I don't, I don't think we can hang our hat on that and say it was absolutely 10, 10, 15. I don't know what kind of chiropractor, and I know there's different ones, but like my chiropractor adjusts me. I'm in and out in, in five minutes. Mm-hmm. I, my old chiropractor would be more like 10, 15 minutes, but it's not that long. So she obviously, it seems like, stayed after the appointment and chatted with them for a little bit. So I know my appointments are a little bit longer. My chiropractor appointments are a little bit longer, but I do decompression. Uh-huh. But I don't know that decompression was a big thing in 2001. Yeah. Either. So, I mean, so who knows? It could have been mm-hmm. the 30 minute. Who knows how long? But it could still, have been. I mean, it doesn't seem logical that she would be there for over an hour. Right. Well, and they said that they, she chatted with them after they left and she took the, the recipe over to, but it's like they said, well, she was there until 10. Mm-hmm. But were they watching the clock, you know, or did she just chat for a little while and left mm-hmm. again without having the, the uh like a transcript of the interview again was it you think when did she leave was she there for like an hour yeah it's about an hour or did they say no i know for a fact she was here at 10 so then then they go from there to the produce market she confirms yeah she was here this could all be solved with the damn receipt and and somebody said in one of the tv episodes that uh patrick gas said that the receipt said she was at the 
the grocery store at 1120, mm-hmm. which seems impossible. I mean, that, that would mean that after she le- after after Agnes was at the chiropractor and then stayed and t- chatted with the chiropractor for 45 minutes and then went to the produce market that was next door and then stayed there for, what, an hour and 20 minutes to buy three items and talk to a stranger to, to give him a receipt and then drove home. So 1120 just doesn't seem possible, but it would show that the receipt would show the exact time that, that she was there. but. I, I think that what we know is she was at the chiropractor at nine. She chatted with them for a little bit, went to the produce market, chatted with her for a minute, got her three items and drove home. So, you know, that would put her, you know, there's got to be a range of times there. You know, say she stayed at the chiropractor until 930 and then went to the produce market and left there at 10. Then she's home at 1020. I think it was a 23 minute drive or whatever, 1020. Or, you know, she was there for, you know, that that could be as late as 11 when she got home. Then let's jump back to Deborah, a disorganized, unmotivated, you know, which which again, you know, she had had conditions that led to that stuff. But I mean, that's the way that she's basically described, that she lays around, sleeps a lot, doesn't like to clean the house, finds it hard given her conditions to be, to get up and get motivated to do anything. Who had you know dropped her kid off at school, then had all day before she had to go pick her up again. Who says I was there for a short amount of time, and then my mom got home. Well, you know, so you could throw that up as a red flag. It's like, well, if we know she was there eight in the morning, and her mom didn't get home till ten thirty or eleven, that's not a short amount of time. But what what's a short amount of time? Yeah, that, that's just what a is it phrase really? I yeah, mean, what does a short amount of time for Debbie mean? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and how much of that is she if she wasn't involved? Is she committed to memory? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, you talk about that. Here's, I mean, just a real world experience. It just depends on the person, right? Like if if I come here to your house and I tell my wife I'll be back in a little bit, she knows it's going to be two hours. But right. I said a little bit, right? You know what I mean? Now that's a little bit for here, right? You know, if I was going to be here a long time, it might be all day, right? But if I was here two hours, I wouldn't say I was there all day. No, it's it's all a matter of perspective. But mm-hmm. there, there's, you know, if we we look at Mabel's timeline, we also can across the street, you know, she's got a pretty good handle on at what time she went to which place and you know went to the Y to swim and stuff. And she says it was around ten fifteen when she saw uh, Debbie walking out to her car, but she didn't know if she left then or not. Well, it it seems like based on the timelines we have that that wasn't Debbie leaving because it seems unlikely if it actually was 10 15 that agnes wouldn't have been home yet you know and and and, uh gosh i don't remember how she if she knew or or how she was saying that she thought agnes was home i don't think she confirmed that agnes was home she thought it was weird that agnes didn't walk her out Mm -hmm. but maybe because agnes wasn't home yet uh and she went but you know there's there's just a lot up in the air there what if what if that 10 15 was actually 10 30 or 10 45 you know, seems less likely given it was it was that that same day. But you know, it, it just none of it really matters. We, we I don't want to say none of it matters, but we can't really hang our hats on anything when someone who wasn't paying attention and tracking time to then later give you times. You know, for example, the the lady uh, behind uh, Doctor Abelos that was that lived behind them that saw the man in the backyard. You know, she's like, I think it happened between here and here and here and here. And then later she was able to narrow the time, but not by a lot, based on her caller ID. Because mm-hmm. she's like, I remember this person called, and it was after that. 
And I remember when this person called and it was before that. Mm -hmm. So I can narrow those times down. But but we can't say it happened at 1 p.m. or 11 a.m. It's it's somewhere in that range. Mm -hmm. Jenny says, Detective Hardy noted that Lloyd did not appear to be dressed in his work clothes and there appeared to be medication laid out on the countertop. If this was not his normal work attire and Lloyd usually left around 1 p.m. to be at work at 2 p.m., wouldn't that push the time of death back a bit earlier if he had not dressed yet for work? Maybe. I don't know what work looked like. I mean, he was dressed. He was wearing slacks and a button-up shirt, which, I mean, hardly seems like hanging around the house clothes. So I don't know. And he, he wasn't a uniformed police officer anymore, so there was no uniform. So I don't – when Detective Hardy says he doesn't appear to be dressed for work, I don't know what that means. I don't know what his normal dress for work is. People have have noted that he didn't look like he was shaved or that one of the detectives had noted that he didn't look like he was clean shaved. Like, I, I don't know. But also there's the, you know, again, time-wise, right? The neighbors say he leaves at 1 for work every day. Well, he starts work at 2, and work is 10 minutes away from his house. So, you know, does he always actually leave at 1? Is he one of those guys that likes to get in super early and hang out and chat with the other coworkers before he starts a shift? Or does 1 o'clock just mean somewhere around 1 o'clock he leaves? Maybe he doesn't leave until one forty-five, you know, and, and he's still at time. And there's also the possibility, you know, I – I'm con- I'll speak for myself. I'm convinced that Agnes was napping when this happened. I mean, with everything we've gone through it a million times, but the you know the glasses on the nightstand, the bed pulled up, the shoes off, all that stuff, the the, the extra pillow on the bed, uh, everything indicates she was napping. I don't know how hard how hard of a sleeper she was. It's possible, you know, because we don't we, we've been talking about time of death a lot, but that's Agnes's time of death based on the the lividity. Um, and somebody asked about blood thinners, could that affect it? It's possible, but her tox screen didn't show anything like that, and her in the autopsy, it uh, there didn't seem to be any heart issues with her that would constitute her taking blood thinners. So, as far as you know, the effect on lividity, I'm still set on it. Had to be she had to die at 1 p.m. or after, and that's pushing it. But we don't know about Lloyd. We don't. We don't. We don't really have a good time of death for him. You know, all we have is the stomach contents. We just know that there was bananas in his stomach, so it hadn't been long since he ate a banana. Or, or some banana before he got killed. But it's possible if Agnes is like a sound sleeper mm-hmm. that the attack on Lloyd happened and she didn't wake up. And 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 if it was someone who didn't, if, if it wasn't Debbie, someone that didn't know she was bad, I mean, all kinds of time could have passed before they go back and find her back there napping. You know, and, and that may be a crazy thought, but it's, it's something, again, you can't throw that, we can't throw everything out. We got to consider all possible angles here. Or, you know, they could have came in at one o'clock and held Lloyd captive on the couch for a long time and, and threatened him and threatened to kill him if he moved. And, you know, hours could have passed like that. You mm-hmm. know, we, we just don't know. There's too many unknowns. No, I, I haven't really thought about the idea of them. I mean, obviously, they're two different people. They had to be killed at different times. Right. You know, but I didn't think about the amount of time between the two. And that's a good point that, you know, they could have came in and they could have came in at 1245 and killed Lloyd. Right. Now, that's only 15 minutes before you're supposed to leave, but you can do a lot in 15 minutes. Right. And then they start grummaging through the house or maybe the attack lasts long, you know? Right. And they don't get back to her until 110, 115, mm-hmm. Like you said, they're stumbling through the house. They don't even know someone's back there. Right. Or maybe Lloyd doesn't actually leave for work until 130. Mm-hmm. And that pushes everything again. And, and the neighbors say he leaves at one because it's around one. Mm-hmm. 
you know, but it was actually one thirty that he left, and then yeah, everything pushes back again. So yeah, there, there's there's all kinds of different possibilities there. But I, I don't I don't think I buy the wasn't dressed for work thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, I mean, my grandpa always wore a button up shirt, mm-hmm. usually unbuttoned, like some polyester shorts with a shirt unbuttoned, sitting around smoking some Doral cigarettes and drinking a Goebbels. But mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, that's how he dressed. But I, what I can't see is on a day that he has to work, getting up, cleaning up. Getting dressed into slacks and it was a polo or a button. It was collared shirt. Uh, getting himself all dressed up to be at the house for a couple hours and then changing to a different pair of slacks and button up shirt. Like I, I don't. Again, I think that's uh, kind of manipulating the way the the narrative to to fit their theory that he wasn't dressed for work. Again, you know, because again, he's a civilian. He's not wearing a police uniform. Russell says, is it possible, given the neighbor's observations, that Deborah parked in the driveway around 8-ish and then moved her car to the street at 10.15? Mabel may well have seen Deborah simply moving her car to allow Agnes to access the garage. Also, Deborah stated that she left after Agnes arrived, which had to be after 10.15. Yeah, we discussed the timeline of that, but as far as, far as the 10.15 uh, at length, but the uh, the car in the driveway, all I can think of is that if that witness was accurate in the recollection that Deborah's car was parked in the driveway that she might have been like pulling in to turn around to park on the street. And I say that because we have at least one, if not two other witnesses, two other witnesses, Joe Zabo and another neighbor that saw Debbie's car parked in the street around eight fifteen, around eight o'clock in the morning before that ten fifteen. So it, it doesn't it doesn't appear that her car was just sitting in the driveway for any length of time. So my guess is it either was never or that person happened to catch why she was like turning around. But, it, but well before 1015, we have multiple witnesses that say the car was parked on the street. Our last question comes from Sarah. I noticed in the Fort Worth police summary, the first paragraph, it says that when the officer arrived for the welfare check, both the front door and the back door to the residence were locked via deadbolt locks. Wouldn't this indicate that the perpetrator had to have a key in order to lock the deadbolt behind them when leaving? No, I don't think that tells us. I don't think the doors being locked tells us anything about somebody having a key because of the garage door. It seems pretty clear that whoever this was, even if it was Debbie, the way in and the way out were likely the garage. The garage door was closed while while Agnes was home, which is unusual according to the neighbors. We, we know for a fact there's a garage door opener missing. Yeah, I was going to say that we know for a fact there's a garage door opener, and we know for a fact that there's an opener key or entry button not accounted for. Right. Yeah, it's it's missing. Mm-hmm. And and then you also have uh, the nephew, Billy Ray, who said that they would leave one in uh, like under a flower pot in the back for him when he wasn't going to be there, now, which, which could be a way in. I kind of doubt it, though, because for someone to use that, would you know how would they know it was there? Who would go to the backyard and look under a flower pot for a for a garage door opener? That just seems unlikely. It, it would seem that there would be someone that would have an intimate knowledge, very very close to the Courtney's that would know that would be there. But anybody that had that kind of knowledge could have just probably just walked in the front door or knocked on the door. You know, I mean? so say it's Debbie or say it's Billy Ray. You know that that did this. Well, yeah, they could have got the garage door opener because they knew it was there. It's like, yeah, but why? They wouldn't need to. They just go knock on the door and walk in. 
you know, it's not like they they don't have to go to the front of the house if they if they open the garage doors. So yeah, I think the way in and out was 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 the garage door, and I think the way they were able to leave everything locked is because they walked out the garage door and hit the button and it closed. I think I think you're 100 percent accurate. I think the way out for sure was the garage door. I mean, clearly, that doesn't mean you know they could have the suspect could have been let in by them. It could have been somebody coming to check out the furnace or whatever. You know what I mean? Like it could be anything. But I definitely I agree with you that the way out was the garage. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kaywood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 per month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. And Zach can be found at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. This has been Truth and Justice. Is that the direction you normally make check marks? Yeah, why? I was just, that's backwards.
Yeah, I mean, it's not backward. No, I mean, it just, right. but it's like most people do the other, like. Wait, do they? I do. I go, I go. Yeah, right. No, I mean, the direction's this way, but I start here. Oh, yeah, okay. I was going to say, I thought you were talking about like the direction. No, yeah, like yeah. The, the, the check directions are the same way, but. I do it. I actually do it both ways. Oh, like, do you? I, yeah, I, okay. I don't. I just noticed you do it like the long end first. Yeah. I was like, oh, I don't know if I've ever seen that. <laughs> Where's he even going to go? Dobbies have lowered the prices on hundreds of everyday products. We'll strap it to the roof. Making them feel Ugh. even greater. Remember, it's all in the knees. So garden tools feel larger than garden sheds. And lift. Find great value every day in store and online. Tighten that strap. After all, spring's a big deal at Dobbies Garden Centres. That's the shears. Now for the trowel. Oh, Dad. Dad.